0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
2: I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Football is Family podcast. Today we are going to East Rutherford, New Jersey to look at the New York J-E-T-S Jets, Jets, Jets. I have to say this, the Jets have a very passionate, loyal fan base. One of my favorite parts about the NFL draft is watching the Jets fans' reaction when their team makes a pick. Example, 1995 and Kyle Brady. That's a fun and awesome fan base who loves their team. The Jets were founded in 1959 as part of the Foolish Club, the AFL teams who went up against the NFL teams. Originally, the Jets were known as the New York Titans. The Titans began... Operation between a rock and a hard place. First, they were owned by a man named Harry Wisemer. He was a wealthy man, but nowhere near wealthy enough to afford to lose the amount of money he did over the first years of the team. Wisemer said that he lost $1.2 million his first year. There were times when people who worked for the Jets had to rush to the bank to withdraw their paycheck before it bounced. Second, They began playing, they being the Titans, began playing at the polo grounds. This stadium was originally built in 1880. When the Titans began playing, the stadium was 80 years old. And as you can tell by the name, the stadium wasn't built for football. The Titans didn't draw enough fans to begin with, coupled with the stadium, and you have a bad situation for the Titans to be profitable. Finally, the city of New York was a Giants city. The New York football Giants had been established for many years at this point. It is hard for a new team to come into their own when they have to deal with an established team like the New York Giants. The two big events turned the, the Titans around. First, the Titans were sold off to a group headed by a man named Sonny Werblin. Mr. Werblin would be the one who would change the team's name to the Jets due to the JFK and LaGuardia airports close by. And second, the Jets drafted a man by the name of Willie Joe Namath. Joe Namath really did turn this team around. His presence alone helped make the Jets a household name. Here's a little backstory to to show how the the Jets got Joe Namath. At the end of the AFL season in 1963, the Houston Oilers had the worst record in the league, which meant that they had the number one pick. Everybody knew that Namath would be that pick. The problem was Joe had the choice of playing for the NFL. Houston felt that they couldn't sign Joe Namath. So they worked out a deal with the Jets, who signed Namath for a three-year, $427,000 contract along with a convertible. Of course, we're very familiar with the guarantee. Namath guaranteed that the Jets would beat the highly favored Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. The Jets did win 16-7, to one of the most iconic scenes in football history is watching Namath run off the field holding his index finger in the air. That is classic NFL. The Jets have made the AFC Championship game two years in a row in 2009 and 2010, and have made the playoffs six times in the 2000s. Overall, the Jets' record is 408 wins, 500 losses, and eight ties in the regular season, with 12 wins and 13 losses in the playoffs. And they boast an impressive 17 people represented in the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Their current owner is Woody Johnson. Now, if you want a little bit of trivia, I've got a couple things for you here. Their first overall pick was George Izzo, and quarterback from Notre Dame. Second, the Titans, the Jets, but the Titans at the time, played their fourth game against the Dallas Texans. During this game, a last-second a last play was blocked out by the New York ABC station, who switched over from the game to the Davy Crockett special. This game happened before the Heidi Bowl game. I want to thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's guest. He is a Jets fan with a great knowledge of the team history. I'll let him introduce himself. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me at Jeremy underscore McFarland on Twitter. That is at J-E-R-E-M-Y underscore M-C-F-A-R-L-I-N on Twitter, and maybe we can get you on this podcast. We'd we'll like to welcome everybody back to another interview for the Footballers Family podcast. And today I have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself, my friend?
1: Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Uh, my name is Clayton Truder. I uh, teach U.S. history at Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont. I hold a PhD in U.S. history from Boston College. I'm the Vermont St- State Chairman of the Society for American Baseball Research. Uh, I'm a freelance writer in a number of different venues, including SB Nation, The New Criterion, Reason Magazine, among other places. And in 2021, I have a forthcoming book about the history of professional sports in, Atlanta, in which I can fill you, fill you in more on my Twitter feed at Clayton Truder, at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R.
2: Uh, that That is a mouthful. And, guys, he did that in one breath. That is impressive. <laughs> Uh, And if you're hearing uh, static, I'm here in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee, uh, home of Loretta Lynn. And we had a uh, major storm come through today. And when the gerbil stopped running on the wheel, the Internet goes down. So that's (laughs) you might get a little lag here from that. Uh, The one thing I caught and I read one of your interviews and I cannot remember the the man's name, but he wrote a book over Ty Cobb and then over, I believe it was uh, Butch Cassidy or the Sundance Kid.
1: Yes, Charles Learson. I interviewed him recently for uh, SB Nation's Down the Drive, the University of Cincinnati blog, which I uh, run for SB Nation. I have a weekly interview column called Conversations with Clayton, and I was very lucky to get Charles Learson, who's a fantastic biographer on the show, recently.
2: Well, it was a fantastic interview. Um, When you type in your name, uh, lots of things come up, and that tells you you're getting around. So we're glad that you're here. Now, one thing that the – concept behind this podcast is uh, football is about the players. Yes, uh, I'm sitting in my office here and I'm seeing I have a bobblehead of Kevin Dyson of Eddie George. Uh, I'm I'm pro Titans as you're going to find out. Uh, I've got several things here. I have a picture right over there and you can't see it, but I'm pointing over there. Uh, I was at the game that Derrick Henry busted off the 99 yard run against the Jacksonville Jaguars and he is stiff arming some poor Jaguar fan. Or player. <laughs> and I think the man is still in the hole there at El- or at Nissan stadium. You know, football <laughs> is about the players. Yes. But more importantly, it's about the fans and what better way to learn about the fans than to get a little bit of history about what makes each fan base special. So I am told uh, by you that you are a jets fan. Is that correct? That is
1: correct. Yes.
2: How in the world?
1: My mom, um, I often say, raised me in the Church of Joe Namath. She was one of many young women of the baby boomer generation who embraced uh, Joe Namath as the icon of the sport as it was becoming more broadly popular across the national landscape um, in New England, which you know is seen as Patriots country. Now it was a lot more um, flexible in terms of team support. Previously, there were some Jets fans, there were some Patriots fans. Really, until the year 2000, the Patriots were kind of a laughing stock. They were certainly the fourth most popular franchise in the Boston marketplace. It had very poor ownership for many years. They played at Foxborough Stadium, which was a very decrepit erector set-like stadium. If anything, much of northern New England in particular was New York Giants country. So it was much more okay. open territory in terms of which team you supported. And my mom had been a diehard Jets fan since the Namath era. And she was the primary sports fan in my household. So I ended up supporting the teams that she supported, which are the Boston teams except for the Patriots and then the New York Jets.
2: <laughs> so, so we are talking – see, we can relate. I like the Bruins. I'm okay. uh, the Celtics. The Boston Red Sox are my team. Um, in Joe Harrigan, Harrigan's book, uh, NFL Century, and I don't know if you have a chance to see that yet. It's, oh, love that book. Love that book, yeah. Fantastic book. Uh, he talks about how Robert Kraft uh knew he had to build a new stadium and he took a chance to build a new stadium buying blue steel uh for the stadium uh, in that chapter, which is uh fantastic uh, yes and stuff I didn't know um uh but that is a great book but so so uh I was gonna ask what were the teams in in the north at the time, but during the sixties. Uh, one thing that I have read about the Jets is they when the AFL started, you know the Houston Oilers, which became my Titans,
1: mm-hmm. they were
2: successful. You had the uh, the Dallas Texans, which eventually became the Kansas City Chiefs. They yep. were successful. The Buffalo Bills had their moments. Um, uh, you go around and, and look. I'm trying to remember the other ones. The uh, the San Diego Chargers, uh, the mm-hmm. Oakland Raiders.
1: Um, do you know what the Raiders' original name was? I read this one time. Yours. Yeah, the Oakland seniors because the owner liked calling people Senor. So for like four hours, they were the Oakland seniors instead of the Raiders. Yeah,
2: I didn't know the backstory behind that, but I thought that wouldn't go over well today. No, no. And it was it, a different time. And you couldn't say the Alden winner's like a Raider. Alden winner's like a Senior. It doesn't sound right. <laughs> no. Um, no. No, it certainly doesn't. It doesn't, but... Uh the one thing that I, I found about the Jets is that they were uh, in all the things during the night during the fiftieth anniversary of AFL season. You remember that everything came mm-hmm. out during that time oh, I, was a, I was at a Kmart in Dixon were mm-hmm. close to where I live, and I found a New York Titans hat. I'm like, what in the world? I have never heard of the New York Titans. And I thought I knew football, so I did a little research in it, and they folded. The New York Times yeah. was pretty much it. They were gone because of money problems. Now, when it came to the Jets, do you believe that Joe Namath were, was the man that put the Jets on on the map?
1: Thing. Oh, no doubt about it. It was also a matter of ownership change, too. Mm-hmm. Under When they were the Titans, they had a guy named Harry Wismer, who was a PR man in New York who owned them, who just didn't have enough money to own a team, which was actually kind of similar to the Patriots. Their owner was a guy named Billy Sullivan, who was, I think he led a fairly comfortable middle-class lifestyle, but he certainly didn't belong owning a major professional sports team. And Wismer was in the same position. Once Sonny Werblin bought the team, who was involved in TV and many other enterprises. They had a lot more money to invest and they invested it in Namath when he became available and Namath was very much a born star and a perfect guy for the television era that emerged in the NFL during the 1960s.
2: Now I did a, my, two of my kids were born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, um, Mm -hmm. in the, in the, uh, shadow of Bryant Denny. So I did a little, when I was down there, I wasn't familiar with Alabama. I grew up a Vanderbilt Commodores fan, So don't hold that against me. Um,
1: I think that's incredibly admirable. Anytime well, somebody, I mean, as a Jets fan, I can certainly feel this too. Anytime somebody sticks behind a team that is not regularly successful, to me, it is reflective of, of a strong character.
2: Or, or that, or we're gluttons. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I did too. not know, because I thought that the, you know, Joe Namath asked for about $400,000 and a car, and I can't remember the exact car he wanted. It was a Caddy, I believe.
1: I think so, yeah.
2: But they, but he had a, a doctor basically tell the ownership of the Jets to not sign him because of his knees.
1: Yeah, in Mark Kriegel's uh, excellent biography of Namath, it talks about that this was a very physically compromised young man, that if he was playing now with similar knees, a lot of people would have uh, hesitated to draft him, that he was from day one playing on borrowed time. And some people will, will look at his record and say he kind of declined after, say, 69, 70 this is a guy who was just not physically whole from a very young age. And it's remarkable. He was successful for as long as he was considering just that he was a very much hobbled man by the time he was 22, 23 years old.
2: But would, would the jets have won the super bowl without Joe Namath?
1: Oh, certainly not. Um, I mean, although, I mean, there's an excellent, uh, new book called beyond Broadway, Joe by a guy named, Oh, I follow him on Twitter. I, I read part of it. Uh, My mom, who's a big Jets fan, read it recently, too. Um, um, It's essentially about the contributions of the other guys on the team. Certainly, the the whole team um, played a significant role in it, but I think Namath is the driving force behind the run and certainly the face of the franchise and the face of the American Football League, too, as uh, it approached the uh, merger.
2: Now, there's uh, two things about Joe Namath that that sticks out to me. His swagger. Very few people can mm-hmm. pull off a fur coat like Joe Namath could do. Or pantyhose. But also, I believe he might be the only person in the Pro Football Hall of Fame quarterback-wise who have more interceptions than touchdowns.
1: That, that's 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 quite possible. I kind of wonder about some of the early quarterbacks, you know, Sammy Baugh or people like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I, I always. Make note, it was just simply a different game in the AFL in the 1960s. That in in the era of contemporary era era of short passing, it's very different. The number of interceptions you're going to chalk up to an era when guys are throwing long all the time, when interceptions down the field were regarded by many coaches as being something like a punt. So to me, that's one of the things with statistical things in football, more than pretty much any other sport, it's kind of apples and oranges, comparing a lot of the different statistical aspects particularly with quarterback play, I think, um, because if you look at the contemporary quarterback stats, you assume all of them are better than all of the quarterbacks from the past. And I think there's a lot of fine quarterbacks now, but I just don't think it's the case that quarterback play is so radically superior to what it was in all the previous generations. I think the game has just evolved. Well,
2: the, the running back has evolved. The receivers have about the tight ends. They've evolved. And, it, you, and I agree with you. I agree with you. let's, let's i got a couple of things for you here. You ready? Uh, what got you like in the New York Jets? What's that?
1: And certainly the pass interference rules have evolved, too. The protections of the quarterback, yes. linemen being able to use their hands in a way they weren't historically. I mean, the offense has innumerable advantages it didn't in the 60s and 70s. Uh,
2: well, exactly. Exactly. I remember watching – who was it that did a, a – uh, it might have been – the coach for the, new, uh, for the San Francisco 49ers did a, my mind went blank for his name, uh, Bill Walsh did a, did, did a, uh, uh, something on the NFL today talking about that in the 80s about how that, that is different plays for that, uh, and how each different, uh, for the, for the receivers and the, uh, defenders, how that they can defend and how they can catch better. It, it, it's big changes to get more offense. Um, I, the question I was going to ask you is what got you like in the New York Jets in the first place, but you gave us that answer. It's your mother. Um, do, do, you blame, yes. do you blame her for uh, the butt fumble?
1: No, no. I see. I always never thought that was that big of a deal. I mean, I guys tumble for all kinds of reasons. It, I, uh, I mean, of all the embarrassing things that Jets have been involved in, I'm not even sure that's the biggest one. I think the biggest mistake that Jets ever made was leaving the Super Bowl trophy on the side of the highway after winning it. I don't <laughs> understand why that's not a bigger part. Of, that it just was the, the Lombardi Trophy was just sitting there on the side of the highway in Miami for like an hour. That it, it didn't disappear is remarkable. To me, well, that in many more ways reflects the futility of the franchise than anything. Playing in giant stadium for 25 years, you're playing in your neighbor's stadium. It makes you look so weak playing in a stadium with the other team's name on it. Um, I think the Jets have done a million more embarrassing things than that myself.
2: I, I think Mark Sanchez really is getting a bad rap about that. He was a better quarterback than that one moment.
1: Yeah, it's also a tough thing if you – they were a pretty solid team. They had some good offensive weapons. They had an excellent defense. And he was a young quarterback trying to grow into the position. And frankly, at his best, was probably an average quarterback in the league. And I think a lot of times, quarterbacks who are not up to the rest of the team around them end up getting worse reputations than they deserve. I think of uh, Sean King with the Buccaneers yeah. in the late '90s, early 2000s was an okay quarterback, but that Buccaneers team was on the cusp of greatness. And Brad Johnson got to come in and look like. Uh, Look like a superstar, being a slightly better quarterback just a, a year or two later.
2: All you needed was a defense like they had.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Who is, who is your favorite player in NFL history?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, love, I love Namath. I, uh, I'm in historical sense, I, I enjoy Walter Payton, too. I'm a little bit too young to remember him as a player. I enjoy reading about him. Probably my favorite player who I enjoyed his whole career was Wayne Corbett, who came from a small college, kind of came out of nowhere had a highly productive career for, for close to a decade with the Jets. He was also a local guy. He was from New Jersey. He went to Hofstra, where which in Hampstead, New York, which is where the Jets had their training camp. So as being this kind of local guy made good, Cravett became my uh my favorite player during uh, my adolescence and early adulthood.
2: Uh, that that one Monday night game when Arnold Schwarzenegger picked him to go to yeah. go off and it and it happened. And I believe yeah. I believe Keyshawn Johnson is still his biggest fan.
1: Yes, yes, indeed.
2: <laughs> don't He's write a
1: flashlight a, a star.
2: Don't don't write a book about getting the ball. Just play the game.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right.
2: Being a historian, uh, you see things different from a different perspective than most people. Uh, mm-hmm. You see how things are built up over time. Things just don't happen. What do you? I try think, to. That that's that's the idea of history, isn't it? Yes. What do you think is the main reason or reasons why the NFL is what it is today?
1: Television. Uh, a couple of, couple of aspects to it. First of all, tele- football presents on television better than any other sport. It presents across the landscape, it has a very cinematic quality. You have NFL films who created from a very early day high quality productions of the game. It looks better on TV than any other sport. Baseball. Proved too slow for television in many respects. It's very well suited to the radio as a result. Lighting issues, I think, in many ways hurt, even even to the present, continue to hurt both the NBA and the NHL in terms of its presentation on television. Hockey also has the issue with puck being difficult to see. Television, I mean, football is a wonderful game live. I mean, in some ways it's tougher when you're down close than it is. I always like to sit way high up to get a more kind of seeing the whole siege happening kind of view of the game. But, but football had just presented from a very early day by CBS and NBC and later ABC on Monday Night Football. Football presented so well on television. Secondly, the television deals that uh, the NFL was able to work out because of its once-a-week uh, schedule structure. The, um, in essence, socialized um, profit-sharing uh, model the AFL and NFL developed under uh, uh, Roselle um, for giving all the teams equal Equal TV money helps create a highly competitive league, a league in which um, every team was a profitable entity. Made it very different than baseball, where the Yankees are going to have one level of television money and the Milwaukee Brewers are going to have a radically different one. So by having having a degree of parity, by making all of the owners wealthy, uh, and by having a product that presented so well uh, so well in this medium. Uh, Television is what made the NFL the country's premier sport, and why as long as um, mass spectacle sports are on television, football will be the most popular among them by a wide margin. I always laughed two or three years ago when people talked about the NBA. Oh, the NBA is the wave of the future, as it has been for 40 years. I mean, the NBA playoffs have had two, two and a half million people watching them. When uh, When they have Sunday football games in a couple of weeks, there will be 10 times as many people watching almost every game.
2: I went to uh, the NFL draft. I didn't stay for the draft itself, but when it came down to Nashville, I had to go and see it because I didn't want to get stuck oh, yeah. in 2nd Avenue. And I want to say there were tens of thousands of people in that one area for the draft. And I have been told, and, and if I'm wrong, let me know, uh, that there are more people who watched the first, second, and third days of the draft than the NFL playoffs in the past few years.
1: Really? I didn't know that. I I, I, I don't know. The, I, I believe it. I think it's quite possible.
2: I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember reading that. I believe it was in Street and Smith or Athlons uh, hmm. last year. And uh, don't quote me on that. But um, let me tell you, I've been to several Nashville Predator games. It's great live. I can't watch it. Yes. On, I can't watch it on TV. I can listen to a radio, but I can't watch it on TV. But pro football uh, what I like to do is I, I like to mute the commentators on the TV and listen to Mike Keith uh, and Dave McGinnis for mm-hmm. Times Radio, and, and that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it's not synced up. <laughs> you hear about yeah. the play before you see it. But uh, I agree with you on that. Now, i uh, got a question. I want you to think about, about your knowledge. We've got about 100 years of NFL football to think about. Mm-hmm. You can start any quarterback right now for your team throughout the years, go back to Sammy Ball, Otto Graham, who would it be?
1: You know, I, I love Sammy Baugh because you got a guy who can play defensive back, who can punt for you. I mean, you have an incredibly versatile player in Sammy Baugh. I think he'd be a great choice. I was actually watching some footage of, I think it was the 1950 NFL championship game recently, which was the first one after the AAFC-NFL merger. And it's amazing how well Graham throws the ball. He throws a very catchable ball. He throws a tight spiral on a very terrible day. It was when that game was played with a ball, which is certainly not of the quality of a contemporary NFL ball. The degree to which he looked like a contemporary passer, I think is is shocking. I think Otto Graham would be a great choice. Um, I mean, I'm certainly prejudiced on behalf of Namath. Uh, I loved watching Brett Favre throughout his career. I thought it was a very entertaining player to see. Um, To be frank, a lot of the elite quarterbacks of the moment, I find a little stiff to watch at times. I mean, they're they're so good. They're so perfect in terms of their progressions and everything. I I think I kind of fear a degree of uh, color and character has been lost from quarterback play by it being so regimented into these very highly scripted um, progression-based offenses. I mean. There are really no gen- I mean, almost no genuinely terrible starting quarterbacks in the league anymore, and I think it's in part reflective of, of, the, um, of the change in quarterback play. So I would almost certainly pick a guy who is not a quarterback uh, of this moment. Uh, I, I guess those would be the guys in my conversation. Staubach is incredible to go back and watch. He's just such a sleek player. Um, he uh, had, had a great long ball. He, um, I think it's underrated the degree to which he was an excellent running quarterback, too. He got even though his career was relative, His career was relatively short because of both having served in Vietnam, um, but also he got hurt a lot because he was running and scrambling and diving around a lot too. But going back and watching Staubach, he's an incredibly sleek player to watch on the field too. Um, I guess I answered the question with about five or six different quarterbacks, oh, but those would be the, the guys that come to mind. Um, just don't
2: ask Otto Graham to do a Wheaties commercial. <laughs> Have you seen the videos of that?
1: No, I, I know nothing about this.
2: I believe it was Wheaties, but they were trying to market Otto Graham and he won. He won I think ten years that he played, he won titles just about every year. But yeah was not an actor. He was not an actor. Uh, Roger Stahlback to me could was is somebody him and Ken Stabler could make it today. Oh yeah. Now
1: yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Uh, um, you would want
2: Roger Staubach to be the face of your, your franchise.
1: Yes. Keith Stabler
2: probably couldn't get away with what he used to reading the, uh, playbook by the light of the, the jukebox. He probably couldn't do that now. Maybe. Sweating out know. the
1: whiskey throughout the first quarter.
2: Yeah, probably not a good idea, but both <laughs> of those guys, when you talk about Fran Tarkenton, you're talking about, um. People that you got today, those guys could transition. Fran tarkin would have to get a little bit bigger. Yeah, he would be creamed, uh, and I'm surprised he played as long as he did. But uh, oh yeah,
1: that's remarkable. Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
2: if it wasn't for the Steelers in the '70s, uh, I believe that Stallback would have at least five or six Super Bowls. They were just that Yeah,
1: way. oh, I, th- I think I think you're right about that. I I, I agree completely. Um, it's in- I read that. Uh, have you read that uh, Chuck Knoll biography by Michael McCambridge?
2: No, uh, I have not. I have not. I don't even know. Is it available online?
1: Yeah, you can get it. I actually think, I think the, I've think. i read it and listened to it. I think the first time I heard it, I heard it on Audible. I, I do a month-to-month subscription on that, and which I think is a – I love it when I'm commuting and stuff, listening to audible.com. Uh, um, but, I, yeah, I listened to that book, and, man, Bradshaw has not come off well on that presentation. But he just seems like he was a very um, – tough guy to deal with day to day. A lot of his teammates didn't seem to like him. And really for the first half of his career, he was a guy who just seemed like he didn't have it together in terms of his performance, uh, in a consistent basis.
2: They nearly, if I remember correctly, they nearly benched him for, uh, the guy, he, Jefferson street, Joe, uh, my mom. Jim Gillum. Yes. He, um, he lived up in Nashville for a long time, uh, who Joe Gillum, If it wasn't for the fact of injuries and, and drug abuse, would probably be a hall of famer. Poor guy. Yeah, Did absolutely.
1: You... I mean, the first half of the, their first championship season, I think Gillum started half the games. Yes, it is um, because fantastic. he just got sick of. Yeah, he got sick of Bradshaw just throwing crazy interceptions and doing dumb stuff.
2: But see, that's where you get back and look at how history has changed and progressed the quarterback. Uh, you're talking about people that it's become more of a thinking man's game. And mm-hmm. that, that's the idea is just, and that's where Brett Favre, Brett Favre would make you, Oh, he's got it. Then you make you break your heart.
1: Yes. And throw into triple coverage and everything. And but I feel I, I like can, he did that on purpose. Sometimes I think he, he almost liked the game to be a really theatrical kind of thing. Um, part of me just wonders that about his personality.
2: See, I can't say too much. Cause I, I do that on Madden a lot. Wonder why Ryan Tannehill has a lot of interceptions. That's just me. <laughs> Um, what is the one thing about Jets history you would like to own right now? If you could have an item, an item,
1: you know, of all the questions, that's the one I've been thinking about the most. I've been pondering that for a couple hours because I'm not really that big of a memorabilia guy. I think if I could do anything, I would want Joe Namath to give my mom a call. I talk to my mom for like 10 minutes. That would mean the world to her. That would more than owning any kind of particular thing. That's, that's the thing Jets kind of thing. I would I experience I'd want to have. Now I
2: want to tell you this because I am one. Are you a mama's boy?
1: Oh no doubt about it.
2: I, I'm one too. And I'm there's nothing wrong with that, folks. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh I have I have some the, the, the big things I have around here, I got to meet Chris Johnson his rookie year. Oh wow. the Titans and I and, and he took a picture with my son, signed something for me. Uh but one thing that somebody gave me is an autograph card with Kevin Dyson, and it's a it's a drawn of the Music City Miracle, and he has Music City Miracle oh, nice. underneath it. And, you know, it's just a football card. But that means something. It's something that means something to you, like the Joe Namath call would mean something. Um, mm-hmm. but now, you got probably the one of the biggest upsets of all time, Super Bowl three. The Baltimore mm-hmm. Colts should have rolled over that team. Should have rolled over that team.
0: Yeah.
1: It seems I mean some people have tried to kind of counterfactually present while well, they were kind of slow, they were kind of a team that was on their last legs. I I don't buy that. I think the Colts probably if they played 10 times, would have won that game 9 of them. Um it's just a lot of circumstances came together and from one thing from a book I read called Collision of Wills by um um by Jack Gildon, which is really a, an excellent uh, account of the Shula um Unitas relationship. It seems like uh Shula's arrogance in many ways kind of cost him in some big games time after time early in his career. He certainly learned from it, but uh, I mean they blew that the, the shoot. I mean whether it was the '64 championship game against the Browns or Super Bowl three, his early or, or the Super Bowl against the Cowboys, I think it was Super Bowl six, where they yes. got beat twenty four to three. He had a way of losing big games and coming up small in those moments early in his coaching career.
2: But he did learn from it. Do you think he is the, uh, the greatest coach of all time until about two more years and Bill Belichick takes that title?
1: Oh, I, don't, I, I think about that a lot. Um, and what Vince Lombardi did was pretty incredible. I kind of love the simplicity of their offense and the ability to execute it so well. Um, uh, I mean, Belichick is tough to argue with. It's remarkable what he's, what he's done. Um, I mean, Chuck Knoll's tough to, I mean, would be, I think someone could certainly argue on behalf of yeah. him. I think, in terms of inventing what running a modern team is like, Landry could certainly, the argument could be made for him. Bill Walsh, I think the argument could be made for. Um, I think there's like about five or six guys in the conversation. I think it's really a matter of taste uh, in a lot of ways. I would almost lean Knoll, I think, but um, in part because I think he's been, and I, partially because I read that biography recently, so I've been thinking about Chuck Knoll. But I think he's also been maybe a little undervalued among that kind of Mount Rushmore of coaches. What
2: you need is a seal here and a seal there and you go up the alley. And that was the Yeah, Green that's right. Bay, <laughs> that was the Green Bay running play. And I tell you, they told you it was coming. Good luck stopping yeah. it with with, with Forrest Gregg and, and then you got you know, you got their running back. It's that was an amazing team. Amazing team.
1: Yes, certainly was
2: and Bart Starr really doesn't get a lot of credit because they didn't ask him to throw a lot. But if it wasn't for him, I don't think they would have won what they did.
1: Yeah, I guess he's kind of the ultimate game manager, isn't he?
2: That If if you can hang a title on somebody, and I'm sure he didn't mind it because he, you know, he's got the rings to prove it. Got one mm-hmm. more question for you, my friend, and I will let you go for the day. What makes okay. football family to you? Now, you've explained about your mother. Is that mm-hmm. part of
1: it? Oh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. From the time I was a little kid, I mean, the weekends in the fall was either my brother and I playing football or, um, watching, watching pro football, watching college football. It's just, 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 um, the, the rhythm of our lives in the fall was built around football from the time I was a very little boy. Um, I, um, I mean, I was, I was also thinking, I I think you had a question about the first, uh, first time I ever watched a football game. I got thinking about that too. Um, it was specifically it was January thirty first, nineteen eighty eight. Was the, my first recollection specifically of watching football. It was Super Bowl twenty two with the uh, Redskins and Broncos, and I was a pretty little boy and uh, we don't. Well, talk I, about I guess that. a rather little boy. We don't talk and, about that. Um, oh, are you a uh, what? Are you a Redskins fan or oh, it's a Bronco yeah.
2: fan? Forty two to ten. We don't talk about that.
1: Okay. Well, okay, but my point is actually brought positive for the Broncos. I went to bed after the first quarter of that game. I was, you know, my mom's like, oh, "I'll go to bed. I've Got school the next day." The Broncos were ahead ten to nothing when I went to bed. You know, barefoot Rich Carlos had just kicked the extra point to make it ten nothing. So I was like, "Oh, the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl." And then, you know, all hell broke loose in the second quarter. But uh, that is my yeah. That's my first first. I'm I'm sure I was. Sitting around football games was the first one of which I have a conscious memory. For whatever reason, um, I was like I was like six, I was six, seven Then all like all of my first sports memories tend to be from nineteen eighty eight. Because I, I very distinctly remember the Olympics, like two weeks after that. And then I remember the baseball season well. So it's all like in many ways, it's my first really conscious sports memory. Is that is watching the first quarter of Super Bowl twenty two? That
2: actually is my first memory as well, and uh, which like, really. Yes, led me to several years of watching the Broncos not make it and then finally seeing them win two. And they would have had a fan if they hadn't traded my boy Jay Cutler away. That's, that's all I can say. That, that hurts. That hurts.
1: That, I'm so glad to hear you. I have been a, such a Jay Cutler defender for many years. I think that the, the, the fact that a guy who dealt with diabetes was able to have such an impressive football career is one of the most understated sports stories of recent memory. Just all of the physical things that that entails that he was going through, whether it was psychologically, whether it was in terms of how he was feeling throughout his body, that he was able to be a not just a competent NFL quarterback, but a nearly elite NFL quarterback for several seasons is a remarkable accomplishment, I think.
2: Uh, If anybody out there has a Jay Cutler Dolphins jersey that they want to let go, let me know. I do not. That's the only one I don't have of his
1: if, if I come across one, I will be mailing it to you. You you let me know, uh,
2: even though it hurts me to think that he went to the Dolphins for one, one year. I mean, I'm sure it didn't hurt him with his checking. I think he got a $30 million contract that year, which wouldn't hurt at all.
1: Not at all, no. Well, Mr. Clayton,
2: I appreciate your time today. Um, and folks, this is another reason why football is family. You can have a good discussion and get to get to meet some new people. Thank you.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It was a genuine pleasure.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network.
1: Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month.